You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, you've seen them in pop culture for years, but you've probably never seen one in real life. This week, we explore the theme park attraction, the Tunnel of Love. It's almost impossible to find a piece of land on Earth today that someone somewhere doesn't claim to own. But what about outside of our planet? We ask, who really owns the moon? True crime podcasts have exploded in popularity over the past few years. But while most tell the story of crimes that have already been solved, some actually help solve the crime they're telling you about. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, my man, what are your feelings about water-based rides at theme parks? I think you already know the answer. Um, <laughs> you hate them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go to a theme park and get wet. I'm out on the water-based rides. Well, Jay, a water-based ride that I bet you've never been on is the Tunnel of Love. You know, the boat ride where you and your significant other disappear for roughly six to seven minutes in a dark tunnel that theoretically functions in much the same way that Cupid's arrow would for your love life. Now, Jay, I'd say the reason you've never been in one of these tunnels has nothing to do with what I imagine to be your lack of game when you were younger. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Didn't realize you were going to, like, roast me on this, uh, on this episode. Jay, the real reason, okay, is because you're not over 70 years old. Tunnels of love have basically gone the way of the dinosaurs. The reason for this, as you'll hear in just a moment, almost perfectly mirrors the way we view relationships in our modern time. There's no disputing the legendary Tunnel of Love is, well, famous. Featured throughout pop culture for decades, from Scooby-Doo to The Simpsons to the millennial cartoon favorite Rugrats, generations of folks have grown up with at least an awareness of what they are. If you haven't, though, the depiction of a tunnel of love goes something like this. Typically, an awkward would-be couple squeezes into a boat, usually for some reason it's shaped like a love swan. The boat takes them into an enclosed dark tunnel filled with neon hearts and other cheap, glowing, lovey-dovey decorations. When they come out on the other side, and the cartoons usually feature lipstick marks on the guy's neck, it is assumed that the couple now knows each other much better than they did when they went in. Jay, the truth is, and why you have most likely never seen one, I mean, you're, uh, you've got game. You've, your game has especially gone up as you've gotten older. It's not necessarily wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I know you, I know you. Jay, the truth is, and why you have most likely never seen one in real life, Tunnels of love are almost impossible to find today, while a hundred years ago, they were almost everywhere. In the early 1900s, innovations in ride technology and Americans finding themselves with some disposable income led to what is referred to as the golden age of amusement parks. 
due to, let's just say, very lax safety regulations back then, theme park guests often wanted something a little more low-key that wouldn't potentially kill them. Enter the Old Mill in America water ride, or as it would soon be referred to, the Tunnel of Love. The original water-based ride wasn't for you and your prom date, though. It was more like for you and your dad. (laughs) The walls featured murals of famous architecture or pictures of scary things like goblins and evil leprechauns, often illuminated by multicolored lights. But, Jay, slowly the dynamics of these rides did start to shift from the you and your dad to you and your crush. And at this point in our story, it's vital to think about the sensibilities of that time. While we don't really think about it much today, unchaperoned dates for folks of any age in the 1920s and the 1930s were viewed as risque and scandalous. Unless you were married, society often frowned upon couples seeking privacy. So a slow water ride with goblins painted on the wall in a theme park where you could go with your little brother offered the perfect opportunity for a romantic moment alone. And Jay, as with most things, it didn't take long for amusement parks to catch on to what was happening. The average ride time of the old mill boat ride went from about six minutes to eight or nine minutes. And often couples would stay in the tunnel while the boat exited without them. Some amusement parks embrace the change in culture, changing out the decorations to be more Valentine's Day themed than Halloween, but others very much did not. Some parks even started to hire security guards to keep couples from necking in the tunnel. In fact, Kennywood, a park that is still operational in Pennsylvania, gave its security officers bats and permitted them to, quote, whack the buttocks of anyone behaving in a way contrary to the spirit of the ride. (laughs) But as I said earlier, while it's estimated that there were nearly 700 tunnels of love by the time that the 1950s rolled around, the number is in the single digits today. In the end, it wasn't the bat-wielding security guards or even the parents that didn't permit their kids to ride them that killed the tunnel of love, though. It was the relaxed dating standards that came about in the 1960s. Societal norms shifted, and now you could just, like, I don't know, go to a movie alone with your girlfriend instead of going to a theme park for six minutes alone in a rickety boat surrounded by weird paintings. Well, the only amusement park I really had access to growing up was uh, on the 4th of July weekend every year in my hometown. There was a pop-up carnival that came, uh, and it would set up in this big parking lot right in the middle of town for, like, three days. It was like all the rides were really rickety and grungy, and they were all the same every year. And what I remember most is they had the spinning wheel that you kind of strapped into laying down, and they would only play Creed. It's like, with arms wide open. (laughs) Like, it was that song, but it was just on loop. So it was like three songs just constant over and over and over. And so this year, you know, went back to my hometown for the 4th of July. It's getting late at night, taking kids to the fireworks. Decided to walk over to the carnival, get some funnel cake before we went over. Guess what I hear blaring through the parking lot in the year 2022. Still, to this day, same ride, same song, same soundtrack. 
So Dave, back on episode 60 of our podcast, we did discuss a time in history when the United States strongly considered launching a nuclear missile at the moon. Do you remember this? I do. Well, one of the men that we're going to talk about in this segment today probably would have been pretty upset with that because in his mind, he owns it, right? So we're trying to figure out (laughs) and nail down who owns the moon uh, or who can go to the moon or who can build on the moon. He owns it. (laughs) So Dave, to find an example of someone at least making the first documented legal claim to the moon, we have to go back to 1980. A former car salesman and ventriloquist named Dennis Hope was down on his luck and recently unemployed. He was driving down a road late at night and at least the way he tells it, looked up at the moon and thought, man, that's a lot of property. Hope went to work researching the legal red tape surrounding moon ownership and stumbled upon an outer space treaty signed in 1967 by several nations, including the United States. Although the treaty does state that no nation can claim to own the moon, Hope believed he had identified a key loophole. The treaty says nothing about individuals claiming ownership of the moon. Hope then sent a letter to the United Nations laying claim to several celestial bodies, the moon included, and although the United Nations never acknowledged this claim, this did not hold Hope back, Dave. In fact, in his own words, I wasn't asking their permission, I was merely informing them what I was doing. Dave Hope has actually gone on to take the next step and cash in by selling deeds to plots on the moon. At around $24.99 for an acre, Hope estimates that he has made around $12 million selling off property on the moon. Incredible. Now, most legal experts don't agree with Hope that he has a legitimate claim to the moon. You don't say. <laughs> but his story does raise questions, right? Especially with nations returning to the moon and private companies eyeing expansion there. Someone to go to the moon to mine or to conduct scientific research. But as more and more rockets land on the surface, the legal implications are only going to get more complicated. The aforementioned treaty, which was signed two years before the U.S. even landed on the moon, only runs 2,200 words total, and it doesn't address many modern concerns in greater detail, such as what kind of equipment and weaponry is permitted, what are the rules surrounding disputes, and where are certain companies and countries allowed to operate, and what are they allowed to remove from the surface. The fear among people in the space industry is that if we ignore these questions, humanity will default to a first mover advantage, which means that the first one to get to the surface essentially gets to set the rules and expectations going forward. The U.S. only really has one authority law on this regarding companies, the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, which essentially holds that if any company reaches a celestial body they're aiming for, such as an asteroid, they essentially have the right to take what they want from it. So essentially, Dennis Hope doesn't own the moon, but if he sends a rocket to it, he can take the resources that he finds there. So even though it's finders keepers in space, there still remains work needing to be done on the issue of companies expanding operations in space, such as a hotel on the moon or a restaurant on Mars. There is disagreement on which branch of government would even be responsible for regulating space commerce. And so at the moment, the lack of framework means a great deal of freedom is available for any company expanding into space. And although there are treaties for if two countries clash over a resource on Earth, there are none in space. 
1967 treaty does ban the placement of nuclear weapons on the moon specifically and prohibits military bases. Outside of that, though, any other weaponry seems to be in a large gray area. Overall, it seems like we're in need of a modernized update here, though, especially as more and more countries return to the moon and companies begin their own private space companies to avoid potential conflicts and over-exploitation of space. But many experts point out that, at least in this case, a step-by-step approach may be more appropriate since the space age is unfolding in front of us. We may not be fully aware of the challenges of the future until they actually happen. So where is Dennis Hope in all of this? Although he has become a little concerned about his ownership of the moon and the control of the galactic government that he is the founder and self-appointed leader of, the now 71-year-old Hope does have extensive plans to notify nations and companies trying to use his property that they will have to pay a licensing fee. In Hope's own words to Politico, it's always a battle trying to maintain and keep ownership of what you think you have. Now, I know that we disagree on this because we've talked about it many times through the years. You are of the mindset that in the not-so-distant future, people are going to be on hoverboards and we're going to be living in space colonies and yada da da And I just say <laughs> it's not ever going to happen. Going back to the Bluetooth conversation we had like 20 or 30 episodes ago, we can't even get Bluetooth to work right. You tell me we're going to live in space? <laughs> Well, you definitely sound like the guy before the Wright brothers, like watching them in the field. We'll never fly. They can never fly. I can't believe they're even trying. Humans, if we were meant to fly, God would have given us wings. (laughs) Why do I have a southern drawl? (laughs) How do you buy them? Is it Bitcoin or on the dark web? Well, here it is. Lunar land. Become a lunar landowner and buy a piece of the moon. Here's the uh, the standard package. You get one acre, a moon deed, <laughs> a map of the moon, and the pledge of uh, being a Lunar Land member. I mean, it sounds completely worth it to me. Jay, our podcast, this podcast, came about for a lot of reasons, but it mainly exists because we've always liked interesting stories. And I mean, like I, I say it in the open every single week, we really do want to bring our listeners interesting topics that are worth their time. Our commitment is that we will never do a segment on this show about something that we don't also find fascinating. Well, Jay, one popular podcast genre that we obviously, at least I, I hope we never fit into this, is true crime. I guess if one of us commits some kind of heinous crime, we could end up on there. <laughs> Like, for example, an ABC poll found that in 2021, 44% of all podcast listeners listen to at least one true crime podcast. Jay, do you listen to true crime podcasts? And if so, what's your favorite one? I watch true crime uh, documentaries more than listen to podcasts. You watch Unsolved Murders, which I Unsolved hate. Mysteries. I hate when there's no ending. Uh, okay, well, whatever yes. it is. You watch Unsolved Things, and I can't stand it. <laughs> now, I did get into Serial. I think most people did. Serial is, I yep. mean, it's probably at least, if it's not 10 years old, it's close to 10 years old at this point. Uh, but it was kind of the first, like true crime podcast sort of sweeping the nation type thing. Well, my favorite has got to be the bizarre yet fascinating podcast called S-Town that aired a few years ago. Yes, I did listen to that. Did listen to that too. Very good stuff. And Jay, true crime podcasts have become so popular, in fact, 
that they've led to TV shows and movies made about the real-life stories that they tell. Even the popular current Hulu series, the Steve Martin and Martin Short show Only Murders in the Building, is about this very thing. The characters are making a podcast of a murder that's happening on the show. But Jay, sometimes these podcasts do more than just entertain us with the retelling of a solved crime, or in the case of your unsolved mysteries, an unsolved crime. But sometimes they help actually solve something in real time. Sometimes they're like the teacher's pet. Over two decades ago, around 2001, in Sydney, Australia, a journalist named Hedley Thomas left the police station shell-shocked. Back in those days, Jay, few people had heard of a lady named Lynette Dawson. Lynette, a mother of two, had disappeared without a trace back in 1982. From that day forward in 2001, Thomas couldn't get over how strange he felt that Lynette's disappearance had just been shrugged off for years. It basically was determined that she had just run away, abandoning her life. A young mother who was devoted to her daughters was being written off as a woman who didn't care about them, who just ran off, Thomas told the Australian media, all while her husband was conducting this extraordinary relationship with a schoolgirl half his wife's age. Jay, according to Lynette's husband, Chris, his infidelity with that girl from the school that he taught at, the babysitter for their children, by the way, humiliated her so much that she abandoned her family and left with very few clothes, no money, and no car. Jay, even her contact lenses were left behind, and as a disgruntled contact lens wearer, I will tell you, red flag. But Jay, for 15 years... Thomas sat on his frustration with the case. Lynette's body had never been found, and there was no evidence that her husband had killed her. Coming back to it every once in a while, Thomas tried to let it go, but he just couldn't. How could this case have ended the way it did? Well, eventually, Thomas could stand it no longer. Fifteen years after he left the court in shock, Thomas started making some calls. He interviewed Lynette's friends, her family, senior police officials who worked the case. Jay, interviews that are hard to believe that he pulled off. All of this led to the 2018 release of his podcast about Lynette, The Teacher's Pet. Evidence revealed in that podcast, such as inconsistencies in Chris Dawson's statements, painted Chris Dawson as the killer. And within months of the podcast's release... Dawson was charged with the murder of his wife. Now, while the popularity of the podcast led to the conviction, and a strange twist that also nearly got the conviction thrown out, Chris Dawson's legal team argued that the podcast made the case nearly impossible to carry out in a fair way. The public had already decided that Chris was guilty. But, Jay, while this did delay the final sentencing, it didn't derail it. And this past month, 40 years after Lynette vanished, the New South Wales Supreme Court upheld the conviction of Chris Dawson. This reminds me of one of my favorite true crime experiences that I've ever had, which is a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. It's very famous because there was like an HBO series made about the book and uh, Michelle died kind of like 
three-fourths of the way through writing the book. So some journalists kind of compiled her notes and finished it out. But it was about the Golden State Killer. And really just like a few months after she put it out, the Golden State Killer was caught. Uh, and really her research kind of led to renewed interest, which ultimately led to the Golden State Killer kind of facing justice finally. Uh, and man, that, that book was so interesting. Like I was listening to the audio book. I was mowing the lawn. I was like, is the grass long yet? So I can go out and mow the lawn again. So I can like listen to more of it. You know, like it was, <laughs> uh, it just hooked you and it made you want to know the answer so bad. But one of the things that she uh, talks about in the book is just how obsessed she was with the case. Like she was like, I have to solve this. Like, uh, and her husband, uh, Patton Oswalt, uh, he kind of writes the intro about how he's just like, man, she would stay up to like two and three in the morning, like notes spread all over the floor, just kind of like diving into the case. So, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, just like, a, a, an obsession with something like that's the only way you can get stuff like this done. Something really interesting about the internet is there are corners of the internet in groups that form on the internet for everybody. Like you can find, people that have similar thoughts to you on anything and so uh it just took me a second to find one two three four five six different groups of people that don't like unsolved mysteries and so i've already <laughs> i've joined i've joined join a all few six. of them and i will be joining i bet some i more. could find uh many more groups that do enjoy unsolved this mysteries. one why <laughs> unsolved mysteries are boring that's what the group is called like come on he, he sat down and made a group called Why Unsolved Mysteries is Boring. Like, we yeah, get it. No, you I have mean, an axe to grind. It's straight to the point. <laughs> what it is. Why they're boring? Because they're unsolved. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Kropp. We'll see you next week. I think I got this Bush Gardens mug back like whenever I was in elementary school or something when we visited mm-hmm. Bush Gardens in Florida. You know how like when you would visit gift stores, they would have like a wall something of with, with, with your name on, on it? Yeah. yeah, so I could never find mine, right? There was like... They didn't have my Jay? actual name is Jay. Like it's not short for anything. Yeah. And so there was always like Jason and stuff like that. And then finally it's like, oh my gosh, there's a mug there and it says Jay. So I had to buy it. I've had it ever since. That's a good point. I don't know that I've ever seen anything with Jay on it. it. Must not be a popular name. No, I don't think it's ever really been on the top names list. Like it might actually be a name that people stay away from. All right. Now you're starting to <laughs> starting to wade into some some territory here.